Hey everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Trill Mix 2016. I'm Scripps politics reporter Miranda Green, and I'm joined, as always, by Aspen Subsang, social media editor at The Daily Beast, and Justin Green, politics editor at The Independent Journal Review. Hello, you two. Hi. <laughs> Justin, enthusiastic as always. Always, always a beam of sunshine coming over there. So, so far this week, there's already been a lot of drama on the campaign trail, which maybe makes sense considering it's not the primary race week this week. But before we get into all of the stuff that's been happening already so far, uh, we have a special guest on the show uh, who is going to talk to us a bit about the 2016 political circus from the outsider's point of view for once. Uh, In the studio with us is Daniel Dale, a Canadian reporter for the Toronto Star, who is now living in Washington, D.C., eating, breathing, and sleeping U.S. politics and specifically Donald Trump. Previously, uh, Daniel covered Toronto Mayor Rob Ford, who actually passed away last week. And now he's here in the U.S. to see what all the hoopla is about with the 2016 campaign. Hey, Daniel, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So, Daniel, uh, let's start out with asking you, what are some of the clear similarities between Rob Ford and Donald Trump? You know, I was thinking today about the the, the exhaustion that both of them in gender, the fact that uh, with both of them, you know, nothing is simple. No, you know, town hall booking with any other candidate. Um, you know, they book the town hall, and you go to the town town hall. And with with Trump, and you know, previously with Mayor Ford, you know, you just never know what is going to happen. Are they going to cancel? Are they going to fail to show up? You know, Trump's response to his campaign manager being charged. Um, this type of sort of unprecedented response to controversy to scandal and the the tendency to go on the attack whenever challenged you know someone will call trump a sexist and he'll be like you know no one has done more for women than i have i'm a pioneer in advancing women's rights breaking the glass ceiling um that was something we saw frequently with mayor ford also where you know he would be accused of racism and he'd say no one has done more for black youth for example than i have um so there's there's a lot of differences and i, I always make that clear but they're a lot of similarities too. So, for instance, uh, by your estimation, there's no way Rob Ford could have ever become such a national candidate in Canada in the same way that Donald Trump has in the United States. Like, could could a Rob Ford being a prime minister ever occur? I don't. I don't think he could have ever become prime minister. But um, he had a real following outside Toronto as well. You know, we have a we have Quebec. We have a substantial French language population. So, you know, Ford didn't speak French. He wouldn't. He couldn't have been PM. Um, but I think he could have done he could have done quite well in a for example a leadership race for the uh, Conservative Party in Ontario. It wasn't just Toronto. He had a real he had a real following. And you mentioned that the responses that both candidates do to controversy are very similar, but it's also what's striking to me is the fact that both seem to generate a lot of controversy in equal in equal manners. I mean, I think most American citizens will remember Rob Ford because of the, the drug situation that he was linked to while he was still in office. It's the admission heard round the world. Yes, I have some looked at crack cocaine. For months, Rob Ford, the embattled mayor of Toronto, has been dogged by allegations that he'd been caught on tape smoking crack. Uh, You know, Donald Trump has been linked to a lot of controversy and a kind of crazy comments in the same way. Uh, But he's he's on his rise instead. Yeah. Yeah. They're similar in that way. It's, It's a daily stream of like, what? What did he say that? And and with both of them, you know, it doesn't hurt. They have this they have this core that that loves them. No matter what, and and really, they're they're bulletproof, they're they're gaff proof. Yeah, it's it's truly remarkable. 
So what about covering Rob Ford do you think prepared you for covering the 2016 campaign? Um, I think first and foremost, it was the willingness to contemplate the success of such a person who was so widely dismissed, you know, like way back last summer when people were still like, this is the summer of Trump, you know, this is a flirtation, a fling, you know, he's going to go away. Um, I think I was like, I don't know. I've seen, I've seen someone like this stay around for a long time. I think also de- dealing with the, the, you know, the attacks on the media from a candidate in a way that we haven't seen them before. Um, and the, just the, the frequency of the, the dishonesty, you know, the need to fact check every single little statement because you can't take anything for granted. And then finally, I'd say that the loyalty of their supporters, um, you know, elites in both cases, like really didn't understand it for a long time. And it took a lot of like journalistic anthropology to sort of figure it out. And I think the Ford experience sort of prepared me to, to sort of, uh, you know, open my eyes to what these people were thinking and feeling. I, I guess to, to flip the table on you a little bit, uh, I've been struck as a, like a political conservative in the United States at, at Donald Trump's lack of an ideology, um, at least one that can be seen as meaningful. And from conversations I've had with Canadian conservatives, they were also struck by Rob Ford, not necessarily not being ideological, but the main issues that animated him not being primarily ideological. Like a, a thing that was co- brought up constantly was that they thought the trash, like the trash service, sucked in Toronto, and that was one of the reasons why they were interested in his candidacy from the first place. Can you can you elaborate a little bit on, like, some of the things that initially underscored the rise of Ford? Yeah, I, I think he did, he did have an ideology. You know, his his famous slogan in his 2010, 2010 campaign was uh, "Stop the gravy train," and it was like you know, stop the wasteful spending. His other big slogan was "Respect for taxpayers." So in some ways, it was a conventional like small government, you know, fiscal fiscally hawkish kind of platform. But yeah, in in other ways, it was more about sort of giving the middle finger to the elites than it was about any any type of conservatism. One thing that was interesting um, shown by a bunch of studies is that there was significant crossover between Ford's voter base and the voter base of the late Jack Layton, who was our Social Democratic Party leader, NDP leader. Um, So these are people who were voting for this, like, you know, multicultural, you know, inclusive, big government, big spending kind of guy uh, in federal elections. And then they were going out and casting ballots for Ford. And that's you know, it's both both because of the the anti elite sentiment, um, but also because he he resonated with people, and I think it's it's different than Trump resonates. You know, people like Trump because they feel like he is like an avatar of their anger. With Ford, you know, he he just passed away. You see people of all different communities like crying at City Hall because they felt like they had a personal bond with this guy. They really they really related to him. So I think it was a combination of conservatism. He had a substantial chunk of the conservative vote, um, but also people just like bonding with this flawed man. Uh, and then also people seeing him as the guy who would, you know, tell the elites to, to go away. It's interesting to me that there seems to be such striking similarities between what you've seen happen in Canada and what we're seeing happen here in the United States. I mean, even just what you described there sounds like you could almost draw a direct comparison between people who are willing to vote for Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders because they both kind of encapsulate the same idea that they're shunning the elite, that they're trying to break away from money and politics, that they really want to get back to the everyman. So 
coming well, into the United States, you know, with that mindset that this isn't necessarily anything new, which is something that many reporters and a lot of even Republican establishment have had a hard time wrapping their heads around in this election. How do you think that you've approached the campaign a little bit differently when covering it? Um, well, I mean, I, I think a lot of U.S. reporters have done a really good job, even though they didn't have the, the Ford experience. Um, I think I, I was very intrigued early on by like who the, you know, who the Trump supporter was and what motivated them. Um, so, you know, well before the the campaign really, you know, kicked off intensely, I was like driving out to the NASCAR track in Richmond, Virginia to talk to some of these people. You know, I, I went around asking them about Muslims even before Trump proposed the the Muslim ban, sort of trying to test to what extent is this simply bigotry and what extent to what extent is it like the you know the economic anxiety stuff that's sort of been mocked now um yeah i i think the ford experience just it made me really interested in in who these people were like the 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 why question very early on and i mean it's a small sample size and it's mostly anecdotal but from your experience before the for instance muslim band was proposed um, did you see it as quote unquote economic anxiety or emotional, mostly racial anxiety? I saw a lot of the racial. I mean, it's hard in like a brief, you know, in a, a, a three minute interview, like at a rally to get to the, the bottom of someone's economic circumstances. Um, I met a lot of people who were just like, you know, one guy said, round up all the Muslims and send them to a camp in New Mexico. Yeah, that guy cares uh, a lot about trade. Right, right. The, uh, so, yeah, I saw I saw a lot of the the race stuff. Like I talked to some white power, like white, you know, white nationalist kind of people at another rally in Virginia. Um, so I think I was skeptical of the economic explanation. But I don't know, the more I've read, like I'm inclined not to mock it. And I don't think they're mutually exclusive. Um, some, you know, reporters who mock the the economic anxiety, you know, they, they'll they'll tweet like a, a racist statement from a Trump supporter and be like, oh, you know, look at the economic anxiety here. But like these things are, are so often wrapped so closely together that I wouldn't I wouldn't you know, toss it out. So you have a different kind of audience. Obviously, you're writing for a Canadian audience that's trying to make sense of what's happening in the United States. Uh, what are some of the questions that they have about the race or what are some of the pe- peculiarities that they keep on? You know, they point out that they want to talk about what are some of the headlines that kind of grab them? The, the, by far the most common question I get in Toronto is like, can Trump win? And I just I wrote a piece this weekend breaking down his just you know, stupendously awful general election numbers um, sort of to, to answer that question for those people. Um, uh, yeah, people, people really, like I've tried to, to, you know, to give people an understanding about who these supporters are because people are in Canada are just completely either completely mystified or inclined to dismiss them as, as, as mere, you know, KKK light kind of bigots. And I, I think it is more, complicated than that there's also there's huge interest in in hillary and in sanders like hillary has this deep well of of canadian affection built up over you know the two decades since she's been in the white house and sanders is uh kind of a canadian style social democrat uh and a lot of people like the you know the the very impassioned bernie supporter on twitter uh we see in the u.s there are also a lot of canadian bernie supporters who are you know who are mad at me for writing some perceivedly pro-Hillary story or whatever. There's a lot of overlap between our Bernie people and your Bernie people. So the last question I want to ask you is, uh, as as Donald Trump inches closer and closer to the uh, GOP nomination, uh, a lot of Americans are saying that if he ends up winning, they are going to flee to Canada. So do you happen to have any advice for any Americans thinking that life might be better across the border up north? Um. I well, I would I guess I'd defer to our our prime minister who came here recently, who was like, we're not all it's not all feminists and and panda hugging 
you know, north of the border. Like we have real, we have real issues. We have real economic issues. We have, you know, similar issues like coming out of the recession, um, you know, dealing with the transformation to a modern economy. There are a lot of, uh, you know, people who used to work manufacturing jobs who can't find them anymore. Um, you know, we have a lot of, we have a lot of racial animosity. Um, you know, we had a federal election where, um, the federal conservatives campaigned on uh, policies perceived to be anti-Muslim as well. So I would just say that, uh, yeah, Canada's awesome, but it's not, you know, a liberal. If people are expecting like a liberal utopia, yeah, it's more liberal, but it's it's highly imperfect too. All right. Sounds like we might be stuck then. Uh, Daniel, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's Daniel Dale with the Toronto Star, and uh, we hope to talk to you later on. And uh, thanks for coming on. Thank you so much. So a topic we've talked at length about before is the increasing nastiness that people and reporters are seeing at Trump campaign rallies. One of these instances in particular happened back in March at a Trump campaign rally in Florida when reporter Michelle Fields at the time, who was with Breitbart News, was physically pushed when trying to approach Donald Trump with a question. She said the man that pushed her was Trump's campaign manager, Corey Lewandowski, and she said she had the bruises to prove it. And on Tuesday, that incident seemed to blow up yet again when police in Jupiter, Florida, issued a warrant for his arrest for minor battery charges, and Lewandowski ultimately ended up turning himself in. So this story became the hot topic of the Tuesday news cycle, uh, and it was pretty big news, right? The campaign manager for Donald Trump has been arrested for battery charges. Claims that he said over and over again were fake and tweeted, in fact, that this was not true, that he had never touched her, that, that he would, ne- didn't even know her. is delusional. And-, and and Trump routinely backed him and said and that still does. she was a liar. And uh, still does. And still does to this day. Lies, deceit, viciousness, disgusting reporters, horrible people. Corey, good job, Corey. Good job. And continues to back him so much in the fact that he's actually paying for his lawyers as well. So why is this big news? Why is this just not just more drama that we've heard on the campaign trail and a bunch of reporters whining? First of all, full disclosure, I have to say this at the top. I'm not sure what position you guys are in with this, but uh, Michelle Fields, and I've always been very open about this uh, during this whole Corey Lewandowski thing is a very good friend of mine. So we'll note off the top that Michelle Fields is a reporter that all three of us know pretty well. She lives here in D.C. We we tend to be in the same social circles. We have all been friendly is probably the best way to describe it. But talking to the the heart of the matter here, this is this is a big deal that Donald Trump is backing his campaign manager with these battery charges, even so much so that the police have now stepped in and he still is backing him to the point that he is getting him legal representation. Well, here's the thing. The uh, Jupiter Police Department uh, released the video that they had that is the most conclusive evidence so far and has the best angle, whereas the other videos, you could argue, had like um, more obscured angles than this one. But this is very clear that Michelle, she's walking alongside Donald Trump trying to ask him a question that she is grabbed by Lewandowski and sort of like uh, tossed to the side. I mean, I- I'm... Anybody who has access to YouTube can watch the video. No, he doesn't, like, grab her by her hair and throw her to the floor or anything like that. But she said, and I have no reason not to believe her, especially since weeks ago she tweeted out photos of the bruises, that uh, the way he grabbed her left a bruise and was unacceptable. And she would have been satisfied with an apology, 
but she never got one. Like, this wouldn't have become a huge thing if the Trump campaign had just issued a damn apology weeks ago. And but I that didn't it, happen. And it and escalated the, because and it escalated because Trump even said, you know, if this is really a case, charge him. And, and, and she ended up doing that. She, ended she, up she filed a, a police report. And now uh, the cops see enough evidence to, charging him with battery. And one of the reasons this is a big deal is because not only, no, you don't get to commit assault against reporters or female reporters or anybody who's trying to get close to Donald Trump to ask him a question for a news outlet, which is, you know, important work for us to do during this cycle. And it's not only important because it's more representative of the larger incidents and far more brutal incidents of violence we've seen at Donald Trump events and Donald Trump rallies, including uh, protesters getting sucker punched and kicked. But it's also indicative of the culture that Donald Trump has created around his campaign. I mean, can you imagine any other presidential campaign going right now or that has been launched for the 2016 cycle where your campaign manager could be arrested and charged for battery against, uh, like, essentially, not to be too dramatic about it, but violence against women on the campaign trail and then have the campaign and the Republican, this guy who happens to be the GOP frontrunner, standing full stop behind you and saying, no, we are not letting you go. We are not firing him. Like, what, what, in what other campaign could this scenario be, be imaginable? Might I say it's almost mafia-esque. I mean, the way that I look at this is that they stayed so firmly together. I mean, these charges came out. There were some pictures. There wasn't a video at the time that this actually had happened or at least no clear angle. And yet, despite some of the mounting proofs, despite many of the reporters said they saw this incident happen, Donald Trump unabashedly and strongly said he was behind Corey, even so much at his victory rally up in Mar-a-Lago in Florida after he won the Florida primary, said something about stupid reporters and good job, Corey, and had him standing right next to him on stage as he accepted all of his wins uh, that night. Ted Cruz, a while back, sacked one of his spokesmen for a damn tweet. L let's just be clear about this. The, the bar for firing someone during a campaign is low. It's supposed to be low because you're running for the highest office in the country, and not just the land, but the world, and you're held to a much higher standard. This is, an, this is a battery charge. And I, I think we can all agree, whatever the outcome of this, that is far more serious than a tweet. It's also worth pointing out, I think, a pair of things. The first of which is that this incident, this alleged, whatever, that was, charges were filed for today, happened at Trump's private club, Mar-a-Lago, on his own cameras. Despite that, over the, this happened three weeks ago, over the interim period, repeatedly the Trump campaign said there is no evidence of this. This was captured on no cameras. That came out in a statement by Trump spokeswoman Hope Hicks. She said there were no cameras that captured this alleged incident. And yet, the video evidence used to file charges against Corey Lewandowski came from videos very likely owned by Donald Trump, suggesting that, I mean, presumably, that the campaign had not only seen them, but knew what was going on and knew exactly what to expect and proceeded to deny, 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 only for that to fall through when she filed police charges, which leads to subpoena power. So my... So this is obviously conjecture. We don't know what's going on in the minds of Donald Trump. I think very few people in the world do. But why is Corey Lewandowski so important to him that he's willing to throw his entire might and his name behind and his money to say that he's completely innocent? I, I, I would preface it by saying that I don't think it matters who the person is at the center of this, that I think it's a, it's a Trump thing to basically 
flip the bird to anyone who brings in accusations. The counter to that is that Corey Lewandowski is one of the more um, experienced and sort of prized political operatives in the country. He spent a few years working for Americans for Prosperity in the Koch Brothers Network. He was based in New Hampshire. He's considered to be one of the people who best knows how to win in politics in the entire country. Um, it was a big coup for Trump to hire him, and it's it's very little surprise that he stood by him, but I don't think that Trump standing by Lewandowski is a reflection of Lewandowski rather than it's a reflection of Trump. So, Justin, as we have talked about, uh, Ted Cruz and Donald Trump have a lot to be pissed off about this week. Uh, But it sounds like Donald Trump is taking it to a new level, uh, calling out a certain number of states and particularly Ted Cruz for doing some shady business when it comes to trying to steal delegates that he believes he actually won. Uh, Why don't you tell us a little bit about what that is? All right. So there is this we've talked about it for a few weeks this concept that Donald Trump might not be able to cleanly win the Republican nomination. Um, there is an election next week, the lovely state of Wisconsin, the, the Badger State or the, the Cheese Heads or however you would wish to describe them. All those cheese curds. They will be weighing in. And if Trump cannot win Wisconsin, if Trump cannot win the state of Pennsylvania, if he doesn't perform well in the state of California, it's very likely that no one will win the Republican nomination going into the convention in July. Uh, if you fast forward all the way up there, Realistically, nothing else that happens that I'm about to talk about matters, because this only presumes that Donald Trump can't win the Republican nomination outright. So basically, if Donald Trump gets to that magical number of 1,237 delegates before the convention in July, then he is essentially the Republican Party nominee. What many GOPers are hoping and and do think might be the case is that he will not be able to get to that number. He will be somewhat shy of that number. And if that's the case, it leads it up to a contested convention, which means then that the delegates on the second round can pretty much vote for whoever they want, right? To deconfuse, let's use the, the state that was in the news this week. Donald Trump is pissed as hell because the Republican Party of Louisiana held their state convention. And lo and behold... They said a bunch of political activists in Louisiana who've been active in politics for a long time were unsurprisingly more likely to side with Ted Cruz than they were with Donald Trump. Most states uh, in the United States, when they have political primaries, the, the, the party is sort of like delegation, the, the guy who's like the chair of the state party, the person who's a longstanding official of the state party, and typically someone else, oftentimes are able to to go for whomever they want. They can go, they can sit there and say, you know, like, I, I don't care. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go support Marco Rubio. He dropped out, but who cares? I'll just do that. In this, in the case of Louisiana, all five of those officials sided with Ted Cruz. So the truth of the fact that Donald Trump couldn't just win a state outright, that he actually had to get the backing of these delegates and make sure that they were going to stay with him all the way through to the convention just in case he didn't win outright, kind of became apparent to him over this past weekend, Uh, right? The Wall Street Journal wrote an article that reported specifically that in the state of Louisiana, where Donald Trump won by slim margins but beat Cruz, he might actually not be getting as many delegates as Ted Cruz. Uh, After Rubio dropped out in the race, he basically left his five delegates that the Wall Street Journal reported were going to go to Ted Cruz. And there were five uh, unbound delegates that they also believe were going to go to him, leaving him with a 10 delegate leave over Donald Trump. Of course, Donald Trump doesn't really like being a loser and took to Twitter in a very Donald Trump-esque way to tweet about the fact that this is just ridiculous Republican politics as always and that he was considering suing. Now that he has been briefed in the delegate math that is confusing to pretty much everyone, 
everyone. I think he's backing down on it a little bit, but he is uh, pushing forward in another way, trying to get those delegates now to to be behind him. So I, I guess like the, the thing that's important to keep in mind, and again, all of this could be rendered completely moot if Donald Trump wraps up the Republican nomination before June. Everything, a bunch of what I've done over the last year will be entirely meaningless. <laughs> Isn't that how we always the, feel this, when a campaign the, comes to end? It was all of, for nothing. The sweet oblivion of nothingness. But sort of the, I don't know if it's a bind, but a predicament that Donald Trump finds himself in is that if he is unable to cleanly wrap up the nomination, he will go in with a substantial lead, but very slim odds of actually becoming the nominee. And that's less because of animus against Trump than it is about people who actually go to county conventions, to state conventions, and to a national convention. These tend to be people who have been involved in Republican politics for a very long time. And one of the reasons Trump has been so strong is because a lot of his supporters have not been involved in any kind of politics for some time, and many of them have been involved on the Democratic side of the aisle for some time. You will see that repeated in state after state after state in the country where the rules are not explicitly binding delegates through the first three, uh, three ballots. You'll see that, for instance, in North Carolina. You will see that in Texas, where Trump was put on the defensive so hard he ran to Breitbart to say, my goodness, Ted Cruz is stealing all of my delegates. And what do I have? I have a guy going around trying to steal people's delegates. This is supposed to be America, a free America. This is supposed to be a system of votes where you go out, you have elections, free elections, not elections where I won. I won Louisiana, and now I hear he's trying to steal delegates. You know, welcome to uh, the Republican Party. What's going on in the Republican Party is a disgrace. Whoever has the most votes and the most delegates should be the nominee. And this is something that's going to happen in states where you have any degree of ambiguity because ambiguity tends to be exploited by the people with the most loyal activists, not the most loyal voters. So you touched on an interesting point. Donald Trump, as he has been given much credit, has brought out a lot of GOP voters who don't typically come out to vote. And this is why we've seen him in many instances kind of swell with support and and get these large victory numbers in many states. But when it comes to the delegate count, can you talk to me a little bit about why that might actually end up hurting him, having these supporters and these voters who just don't have the history to experience voting for the Republican Party? Sure. Uh, in, in many states, what you have, people show up and vote on the primary day, and then they think, okay, great, it's done. Uh, Trump won my state. Delegates don't tend to be picked like that. Delegates are then picked at a lot of places by like a county convention, where on a different date, where only people who show up, and typically only people who've been involved in politics for a while, have a shot at winning. It means the people who are going to show up at the state convention, and later the national convention, are more than likely going to be people who either won love John Kasich, and I have been repeatedly shocked to find this, but there are in fact Americans who have this opinion, and also people who are just diehard conservatives and are willing to support Ted Cruz over Donald Trump. And so like that is sort of the landscape that Trump is confronting, where he has scorched the earth, and he's won a lot of states, and he's won a hell ton of votes. But if he doesn't wrap it up cleanly, he knows pretty damn well that the odds of him becoming the nominee are incredibly low. But do you think that it's really fair to say that uh, Ted Cruz has been stealing delegates? I mean, that's just the nature of the game, right? That's just Donald Trump going to Twitter and saying, I will sue because something happened that I did not like. For as much as we may be talking about Donald Trump and his campaign's plan B right now, uh, the so-called Republican establishment has report- has resorted to their plan B and their plan C and their plan D already. It, it does give you a very good indication of how messy 
and sanguinary this could get by Cleveland. All right, well, as we wind down here, guys, I um, I want to end the show with a bit of a, uh, a request, and this is a musical request one. I've... I've heard uh, the Facebookers have told me that you are throwing somewhat of a shindig in a couple weeks, a political-themed party. What do you mean, the Facebookers? You're invited. You and I have talked <laughs> Facebook about Facebook has explicitly told me that I invited to said party, and what, what was the title of it? Um, the Dance Party and Beer Bong Make America Bay Again, YOLO Mageddon 2016. That's a, that's a mouthful. So before we all go to these parties, which tend to be a little bit of a... Um, uh, let's just say they're very packed. There's a lot of people. It's a bunch of like drunk young journalists and DC political types and think tank people getting drunk together in like a frat house. It's pretty much everything that everyone hates about the Washington elite, but we embrace it because. No, are you kidding me? This is a good part. It's not stuffy. We're just like we're in college again. A, Don't say that about. There was a Donald Trump ice luge last time, and that's pretty much that all needs to be said. It was great, and it's we all drank nice. from it. It was, it was fucking great. So I have a request for a couple songs that you can play while we're there. Um, and well, was, there's gonna be a live band like there was last time, so. We'll They'll have to learn it. Great. So they can learn these songs. And I think that I want both of you guys to vote on which one you think should be the piece de resistance. Okay. okay. If anybody listens to this episode and wants to tweet at me to come, and if you live in or around D.C., just 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 do that. Yeah. Um, and uh, Swin's, we'll... Swin's parties are open to all Trill Mix listeners as well. Yes. you'll you'll If you come early enough, you'll get a hat that says Make America Bay Again and or a beer bong. So here's one song. This is a song that is on YouTube. Uh, that is, you know, uh, I've noticed as I was searching for a lot of campaign-based songs that we can play here on the podcast that there are a lot of original songs out there that people have made um, to either support, but mostly to to really denounce the, the, the people that they hate the most running for president. So I figured that maybe uh, as political reporters, we could try to embrace this and figure out a song that you could play at your party. All right, ready? China. When these people walk, when these people walk, we want deal. He jumps out of the seat. No, you, the voting's over. We're doing a Donald Trump song. I. Okay, well, you have to hear the Hillary Clinton one. Okay. Uh, this one is actually, I have to say, the most sketchy, in my opinion. Hillary is just a candidate for me because I'm a So you get the gist. All right, let's do voting. Who thinks that we should go with the Donald Trump cover and who thinks we should go with the anti-Hillary Clinton cover? I don't think you played one, but just by default, I'm going to go with like the pro Bernie one (laughs) (laughs) or or the pro O'Malley one, which Martin O'Malley probably sings and performs by himself all right next time we're gonna have to play those we're gonna have to do some some searching over the internet i'm sure that there are many out there maybe we can mm-hmm. find a couple bernie bros who will come and perform that at your at your party sure i i mean i don't know where between all the smash mouth and the prince they'll be performed by the live band we'll have time to Whoa, maybe out. instead we can just have a lot of Katy perry for hillary and a lot of elton john for for trump and we'll just go from there all right well it was great having you guys and thanks for uh, listening to my song Ideas, I think maybe I should stick to uh, stick to, to podcast hosts and, and yeah. not so much DJ. Yes. You'd make a terrible DJ. I would not. You should, you should not do that. Justin would be a significantly worse DJ. He would just <laughs> sing to everything. All right. Well, thanks for coming, guys. Have a good one. You too. Trumix 2016 is a production of Scripps News out of our Washington, D.C. Bureau. The show is produced by Eric Krupke. 
You can follow us at Twitter at TrailMix2016. We post a lot of extra little tidbits and things we talk about on the show there. You can also follow me at my Twitter handle, Miranda C. Green. And make sure to rate us on iTunes. Any extra stars or any extra little ratings go a long way. Thanks for listening.